0: Certainly want to welcome any visitors with us uh, this morning. It's great to be here for First Communion to celebrate with these two young ladies uh, as they receive the Lord for the first time a gift. So for Lent and Easter, I've been preaching a homily series, um, which by now I'm sure many of the people uh, in the congregation are are tired of, but it's okay. Uh, They'd be tired of it anyway. So... um, the, the the series has four parts to it Talking about the basic gospel message We call it the kerygma This Greek word that means proclamation So what is the basic thing that Christians believe God has done in the person of his son Jesus And the way that I presented it has four parts to it uh, Which we could actually summarize just in four words Created, captured, rescued, and response During the season of Lent and on Easter Sunday We've talked about the first three parts Created, captured, and rescued So God who is The creator of all, creates everything, and out of all of his creatures, which is everything that he makes, his favorite one is you and me, the human person, made in his image, in likeness, the one that he loves the most. And it's not just that he loves us the most, but that he actually has really, like, incredible plans for our lives. That his goal for us, the Bible teaches us, his goal for us, for you and for me, is to make us like himself. That somehow, by his grace, by his power, you would become like God. This is his goal, his plan for you and for me. The problem is that there's an enemy, we find out, in scriptures. Another creature of God who hates that God's plans for us are so incredible, so he does everything that he can to convince us that we can find happiness apart from God. He does everything that he can, beginning with Adam and Eve, to convince us that we don't need God to tell us what is good and what is evil, but we can figure it out for ourselves. We don't need him to teach us what to do or what not to do. We don't need him to lead us into right or to wrong, but instead, we can figure things out for ourselves. Our first parents fall for the trick. And so they rebel against the one command that God gave to them. And when they rebel against the command that God gave to them, they unknowingly sell the entire human race into slavery to this creature, the devil, so that we're stuck as captors of this creature who's who's forever going to keep us from receiving God's incredible promises, keep us in this place of rebellion, So then we ask the question, how does God respond to rebellion when his favorite creature, the one that he gives everything to, how does God respond when his favorite creature rebels? Well, incredibly generously, actually, surprisingly generously, he does everything that he can providing for them throughout history. And of course, he provides his own son, Jesus, the one whom he loves, Jesus who comes to earth, taking on our human nature, coming as though in disguise, C.S. Lewis says, so that he can come to pick a fight against the one who holds us captive. He goes to war against this creature, the devil, dying on the cross, seeming like he's lost everything, but then when he dies on the cross, he enters into Satan's kingdom of darkness and from within the darkness explodes with the divine light to conquer that kingdom and set us free, transferring us from the the family, the kingdom of chaos and disorder and dysfunction into the family where there's a good father and a good king. Now, during the season of Easter, we're asking this last question What is the reasonable response to that kind of love? What's the reasonable response to what God has done in the person of Jesus? And we looked at the scriptures, again, not not thinking about it in our own way, although if we really let ourselves think about it freely, we could probably come up with a similar answer, But, but knowing that we're still, in some ways, tending towards sin, and so we can look at the scriptures and see what the scriptures teach us about the proper response. And the proper response actually is what we get in our, gospel, or in our first reading today, in Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches uh, this message, which we heard last week, and he preaches this message. He preaches the charisma, what God has done in the person of his son Jesus. And in verse 37, it says, they were cut to the heart, and they asked them, what are we to do, my brothers? This is the response, open-handed surrender, which ultimately leads us just to simply saying Jesus, like you just tell me what to do. I'm happy to give my life to you, to surrender everything to you, because without you, I'm stuck in sin and death. But with you, Jesus, the light of the world, you lead me out of the darkness. In fact, he says this in John chapter 12, verse 46, Jesus says, I have come as light into the world, that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness, You see, Jesus doesn't want us to remain in this family of dysfunction and and chaos and disorder. He doesn't want us to remain in sin and darkness, but instead he wants us to move. And so as we come to him, surrendering everything to him, we hear actually his first words in the gospel, repent. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, right after they ask this question, what are we to do? Peter's first words, repent. This is the the next step in responding properly, appropriately to what God has done is to repent, to confess your sins and amend your life, to turn away from the kingdom, the family of darkness and disorder, and to come into God's kingdom of light, right? This image that that I keep keep referring back to, uh, but I think it's a really helpful image, right? You have to let yourself imagine for a minute. Imagine you wake up in a place where it's just completely dark, you can't see anything. You move your hand in front of your eyes, or your face, you can't see anything. Your eyes are longing for light, but you can't find any. And you're feeling around, trying to find a way out of this place, but you can't find a way out no matter how long you look, for hours and hours and hours, days and days and days, you're looking for a way out of this place and you can't find one until finally, enough time goes by that you're so hungry, you're so thirsty, you're so weak from being malnourished that you just give up. Stuck, left for dead. And then something incredible happens. Somebody walks up to you and they have a torch in his hand. And he looks right at you and he says, I know the way out of here. Come with me. Follow me. Right? To turn from the darkness means to leave the darkness behind, to cling to the light and to actually move. Right? Because this person is your only way to life. You have no life apart from him. He is the only one who knows the way out of the cave. He's the only one who has the light. And so you cling to him and you follow him. Now, th- th- this is the question, right? So, so you're following him out of this cave. And as you're following, it's taking longer than you think. And you're reminded very quickly why it is that you gave up. Because you were so hungry, you were so thirsty that you had no energy left within you. And so as you're walking, you begin to think like, I don't actually know if I can make it another step. I don't know if I can actually make it out of the cave because I'm so weak. I haven't had food for days and days and days. And then something happens. Again, the guy with the torch, he turns to you and he says, Oh yeah, I brought food for you. Eat this. I brought drink for you. Drink this. So It'll nourish you so that you can make it with me. You can follow me all the way out of this cave. Right now, if that's true in this, in this scene, this person comes to you, you're left for dead. Hopeless, without life. And he comes to rescue you, and as he rescues you, he feeds you so that you can have everything that you need to make it out. Like, what, how do you respond to that? How do start with saying thank you? Right? Thank you. You surrendered yourself to him. You've turned away from the darkness to cling to his light, and then he feeds you. And just say, say thank you, right? That's got to be the response. And what's more, to just simply let yourself ask the question, what's this person worth to you? What's, he, what, what's his value in your life? It has to be everything, doesn't it? Like you had no life without him. You were stuck, left for dead. No one even knew that you were in this place. And now he comes and he gives you new life and fresh food and fresh drink. That person has to be worth everything to you, right? It has to be. Now, this, of course, you can see. You can see the connection. The one with the torch is Jesus, Jesus, who tells us in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one goes to heaven except through Jesus, he says. And so he calls us to come and follow him. And as he calls us to follow him, right before he gives up his life, he provides food for us. So that in eating this food, we can find the one nourishment, the single source of nourishment that we need. What is is your response to him? If it's true that Jesus is the only way to heaven, if that's true, what's your response? Surrender, repentance, and thanksgiving. What's the food that he provides? It's the Eucharist. We'll talk more about the Eucharist in a minute, but, but basically, what is the Eucharist? It is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. It's, it's, not, it's not just ordinary food that he provides for us, but it is his own body, his own blood, his own soul, and his own divinity. The word Eucharist actually means what? So in, in Greek, the word is Eucharistia, and if you go home and Google search what Eucharistia means, if you spell it right, it's going to mean Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving. This is the incredible thing, that Jesus provides for us not only the food that we need to be nourished, but the food itself is the thank you note, right? Jesus, who is God, he comes down to us, taking on our human nature to rescue us and to pull us out of the darkness. And then as, a, as fully man, he turns around and he offers to the Father the act of thanksgiving, which is the Eucharist, right? He plays both parts. And as he plays both parts, he invites us into it all. So that when you and I share in his life, our lives are meant to be lives that are lived in Thanksgiving, lived in Eucharist. Now, again, if if all of this is true, and I'm not, I'm not here to pretend like I know everyone thinks that this is true, but if this is all true, what's he worth to you? What's the value that Jesus has in your life? Our word for worship, what does it come from? It comes from worthship. When we worship or when we don't worship, we're showing Jesus what he's worth to us. And if this is all true, isn't he worth everything? Doesn't he have to be worth everything? You had no life without him. You have no eternity without him, or you have eternity, but it is a miserable eternity without him. But with him, your eternity is filled with joy. Isn't that worth everything? Doesn't it stand, doesn't he stand above all else and before all else? Now, let's, let's talk more about the Eucharist, right? So, okay, so the Eucharist, we gotta start all the way back in Exodus chapter 12. I promise it won't take super long to, to get to where we need to go. So in Exodus chapter 12, This is Moses and the plagues, right? So Moses, the people are enslaved. Uh, Moses is dealing with Pharaoh. Really, the Lord is dealing with Pharaoh through Moses. The 10th plague is the Passover lamb, where God tells Moses to tell the rest of the people to take a lamb and to kill it. And then once they've killed the Passover lamb, they were supposed to do two things with the Passover lamb. First, they were to roast it and eat its flesh. Second, they were to take the blood of the lamb and sprinkle it on the outside of their door so that the Lord would know to pass over their houses, so to eat its flesh and to sprinkle its blood on the doorpost. And then the Lord says, this shall be a memorial day for you. But when he says memorial, you think, so we think of memory as though like, oh yeah, this thing that happened a bunch of years ago. And you know, the details are a little fuzzy to me because I don't, you know, it happened so long ago. For the Lord, when he talks about memorial things, he's talking about something that it's a stronger word than the way that we speak of memory. For the, for the Jewish people, and in fact this is the case still today, when they celebrate the Passover every year, their memory of it, it's as though time travel takes place. That the Passover that took place thousands of years ago becomes present to them here and now. So they don't say that, you know, God saved our ancestors from Egypt and God saved them way long ago. They enter into the story as though they are part of the story so that they say, God saved us from Egypt. I was stuck in slavery and God saved me. You see, the memory of God is much more powerful than a distant, faded memory. The memory of God is the kind of memory that makes something present here and now. Now, why are we talking about this? Because the Gospels are clear that the Last Supper was a Passover meal. It's super clear. What do you do at the Passover meal? Well, you eat a lamb. The thing is that the four Gospels, none of them mention the presence of a lamb. But instead, what do we see? We see Jesus at the center with his 12 apostles. Who's Jesus? Well, we know from John chapter, t- chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God. So Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, at this Passover meal, takes bread, he breaks it, he blesses it, and he gives it to them, and he says, take this and eat it, this is my body. And then the chalice, take this and drink it, this is the chalice of my blood of the new covenant. So Jesus, the Passover Lamb right? The Lamb of God, he gives them what? He gives them his flesh to eat, which is one of the things. And he gives them his blood, which he says will be poured out for them. And then he says what? Do this in memory of me. Remember, the memory of God is a stronger memory than our memory. And so for for Christians throughout history, whenever they have come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper for what we call Mass, we believe that it's not just a distant memory that we're remembering, but that the past becomes present. That when the priest is saying the words that Jesus says, we believe that the Last Supper comes to this altar. And not just the Last Supper, but also the cross where we see what? Jesus giving his flesh and pouring out his blood to be washed over us. Right, so to be super clear about this, for us as Catholic Christians, what we believe takes place at Mass, what these two little girls are about to receive for the very first time, when the priest says the words of Jesus, we believe that the bread and the wine change entirely into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, even though they still look and smell and taste and feel like bread and wine. We believe that when the priest is done with his prayers, that there is no more bread and no more wine on the altar. And again, I'm not here to pretend like I know everybody believes this. In fact, I'm sure there are plenty of people here who don't believe this. But this is what the church teaches. This is what these girls are preparing for. And this is what ultimately all of us who are able to come forward to receive Holy Communion are meant to be aware of. Because the Lord says, do this in memory of me. Now, if this is true, if this is true, what's this worth to you? What value does this have in your life? Can you think of anything better? The body, blood, soul, and divinity of God himself. What's that worth to you? Isn't it everything? How do you you thank him enough? Well, you begin by receiving it. Remember, the word itself, the Eucharist, it means thanksgiving. So our participation in the Lord's Supper, in the Mass, is itself an act of thanksgiving, where we let the Lord stand above and before all else in our lives. And you see how this has to flow. It has to flow from a life that is totally surrendered to the Lord Jesus and to his church. It has to flow from this, where I see what he has done for me, how he's granted me new life. And I give him authority over my life because I wouldn't even choose that for myself, but he chooses it for me. And so I surrender everything to him and I say, Jesus, I give you authority over my life entirely. And from there, I receive his first command to repent. I turn away from my sins, turn away from darkness, and I turn toward him. And from turning toward him, he then gives me this incredible food. His body, his blood, his soul, and divinity what a gift. What a gift that we get to be part of this with these two people, but what a gift, you guys, that those who are able to receive Holy Communion get to receive it. We'll talk more about it next week, specifically looking at John chapter 6. But first, we have to, we have to finish with this question. It's a question I've been asking for the last three weeks. Have you surrendered to Jesus and his church yet? Have you given Jesus Christ and his church total authority over your life yet? Because if you haven't, you're missing everything. There's nothing that's more worth doing than offering pure and total worship to God with surrender and abandonment.